Section 23 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 23. A Family Affair, Part 1. The small engine attached to the newly steamed tram whistled as it passed the Port Maillot to warn all obstacles to get out of its way, and puffed like a person out of breath as it sent out its steam, its pistons moving rapidly with a noise as of iron legs running. The train was going along the broad avenue that ends at the Seine. The sultry heat at the close of a July day lay over the whole city, and from the road, although there was not a breath of wind stirring, there arose a white, chalky, suffocating, warm dust which adhered to the moist skin, filled the eyes, and got into the lungs. People stood in the doorways of their houses to try and get a breath of air. The windows of the steam tram were open and the curtains fluttered in the wind. There were very few passengers inside because on warm days people preferred the outside or the platforms. They consisted of stout women in peculiar costumes, of those shopkeepers' wives from the suburbs, who made up for the distinguished looks which they did not possess by ill-assumed dignity, of men tired from office work with yellow faces, stooped shoulders, and with one shoulder higher than the other, in consequence of their long hours of writing at a desk. Their uneasy and melancholy faces also spoke of domestic troubles, of constant want of money, disappointed hopes, for they all belonged to the army of poor, threadbare devils who vegetate economically in cheap, plastered houses, with a tiny piece of neglected garden on the outskirts of Paris, in the midst of those fields where night soil is deposited. A short, corpulent man with a puffy face, dressed all in black and wearing a decoration in his buttonhole, was talking to a tall, thin man, dressed in a dirty, white linen suit, the coat all unbuttoned, with a white Panama hat on his head. The former spoke so slowly and hesitatingly that it occasionally seemed as if he stammered. He was Monsieur Caravan, chief clerk in the Admiralty. The other, who had formerly been surgeon on board a merchant ship, had set up in practice in Courbevoie, where he applied the vague remnants of medical knowledge which he had retained after an adventurous life, to the wretched population of that district. His name was Chenet, and strange rumors were current as to his morality. Monsieur Caravan had always led the normal life of a man in a government office. For the last thirty years he had invariably gone the same way to his office every morning, and had met the same men going to business at the same time and nearly on the same spot, and he returned home every evening by the same road, and again met the same faces which he had seen growing old. Every morning, after buying his penny paper at the corner of Faubourg saint Honore, he bought two rolls, and then went to his office, like a culprit who was giving himself up to justice, and got to his desk as quickly as possible, always feeling uneasy, as though he were expecting a rebuke for some neglect of duty of which he might have been guilty." Nothing had ever occurred to change the monotonous order of his existence, for no event affected him except the work of his office, perquisites, gratuities, and promotion. He never spoke of anything but of his duties, either at the office or at home. He had married the portionless daughter of one of his colleagues. His mind, which was in a state of atrophy from his depressing daily work, had no other thoughts, hopes, or dreams than such as related to the office, and there was a constant source of bitterness that spoilt every pleasure that he might have had, and that was the employment of so many naval officials— tinsmiths, as they were called, because of their silver lace as first-class clerks, and every evening at dinner he discussed the matter hotly with his wife, who shared his angry feelings, and proved to their own satisfaction that it was in every way unjust to give places in Paris to men who ought properly to have been employed in the navy. He was old now, and had scarcely noticed how his life was passing, for school had merely been exchanged for the office without any intermediate transition, and the ushers, at whom he had formerly trembled, were replaced by his chiefs, of whom he was terribly afraid. When he had to go into the rooms of these official despots, it made him tremble from head to foot, and that constant fear had given him a very awkward manner in their presence, a humble demeanor, and a kind of nervous stammering. 
He knew nothing more about Paris than a blind man might know who was led to the same spot by his dog every day, and if he read the account of any uncommon events or scandals in his penny paper, they appeared to him like fantastic tales which some pressman had made up out of his own head in order to amuse the inferior employees. He did not read the political news, which his paper frequently altered as the cause which subsidized it might require, for he was not fond of innovations, and when he went through the avenue of the Champs-Élysées every evening, he looked at the surging crowd of pedestrians and at the stream of carriages, as a traveler might who has lost his way in a strange country. As he had completed his thirty years of obligatory service that year, on the 1st of January, he had the cross of the Legion of Honor bestowed upon him, which, in the semi-military public offices, is a recompense for the miserable slavery, the official phrase is loyal services, of unfortunate convicts who are riveted to their desk. That unexpected dignity gave him a high and new idea of his own capacities and altogether changed him. He immediately left off wearing light trousers and fancy waistcoats, and wore black trousers and long coats, on which his ribbon, which was very broad, showed off better. He got shaved every morning, manicured his nails more carefully, changed his linen every two days, from a legitimate sense of what was proper and out of respect for the national order, of which he formed a part, and from that day he was another caravan, scrupulously clean, majestic, and condescending. At home, he said, my cross at every moment, and he had become so proud of it that he could not bear to see men wearing any other ribbon in their buttonholes. He became especially angry on seeing strange orders, which nobody ought to be allowed to wear in France, and he bore Chenet a particular grudge, as he met him on a tram-car every evening, wearing a decoration of one kind or another, white, blue, orange, or green. The conversation of the two men, from the Arc de Triomphe to Neuilly, was always the same, and on that day they discussed, first of all, various local abuses which disgusted them both, and the mayor of Neuilly received his full share of their censure. Then, as invariably happens in the company of medical men, Caravan began to enlarge on the chapter of illness, as in that manner he hoped to obtain a little gratuitous advice, if he was careful not to show his hand. His mother had been causing him no little anxiety for some time. She had frequent and prolonged fainting fits, and, although she was ninety, she would not take care of herself. Caravan grew quite tender-hearted when he mentioned her great age, and more than once asked Dr. Chenet, emphasizing the word doctor, although he was not fully qualified, being only an officer de sante, whether he had often met anyone as old as that and he rubbed his hands with pleasure, not, perhaps, that he cared very much about seeing the good woman last forever here on earth, but because the long duration of his mother's life was, as it were, an earnest of old age for himself, and he continued, In my family we last long, and I am sure that unless I meet with an accident I shall not die until I am very old. The doctor looked at him with pity, and glanced for a moment at his neighbor's red face, his short, thick neck, his corporation, as Chenet called it to himself, his two fat, flabby legs, and the apoplectic rotundity of the old official, and raising the white Panama hat from his head, he said with a snigger, I am not so sure of that, old fellow. Your mother is as tough as nails, and I should say that your life is not a very good one. This rather upset Caravan, who did not speak again until the tram put them down at their destination, where the two friends got out, and Chenet asked his friend to have a glass of vermouth at the Café du Globe opposite, which both of them were in the habit of frequenting. The proprietor, who was a friend of theirs, held out to them two fingers, which they shook across the bottles of the counter. Then they joined three of their friends, who were playing dominoes, and who had been there since midday. They exchanged cordial greetings with the usual question, anything new? And then the three players continued their game, and held out their hands without looking up, when the others wished them good night, and then they both went home to dinner. Caravan lived in a small two-story house in Corbevay, near where the roads meet. The ground floor was occupied by a hairdresser. Two bedrooms, a dining room, and a kitchen formed the whole of their apartments, and Madame Caravan spent nearly her whole time cleaning them up, 
while her daughter marie louise who was twelve and her son philippe auguste were running about with all the little dirty mischievous brats of the neighborhood and playing in the gutter caravan had installed his mother whose avarice was notorious in the neighborhood and who was terribly thin in the room above them she was always cross and she never passed a day without quarrelling and flying into furious tempers she would apostrophize the neighbors who were standing at their own doors the costermongers the street sweepers and the street boys in the most violent language and the latter to have their revenge used to follow her at a distance when she went out and call out the most rude things after her a little servant from normandy who was incredibly giddy and thoughtless performed the household work and slept on the second floor in the same room as the old woman for fear of anything happening to her in the night when caravan got in his wife who suffered from a chronic passion for cleaning was polishing up the mahogany chairs that were scattered about the room with a piece of flannel she always wore cotton gloves and adorned her head with a cap ornamented with many-coloured ribbons which was always tilted over one ear and whenever anyone caught her polishing sweeping or washing she used to say i am not rich everything is very simple in my house but cleanliness is my luxury and that is worth quite as much as any other as she was gifted with sound obstinate practical common sense she led her husband in everything every evening during dinner and afterwards when they were in their room they talked over the business of the office for a long time and although she was twenty years younger than he was he confided everything to her as if she took the lead and followed her advice in every matter she had never been pretty and now she had grown ugly in addition to that she was short and thin while her careless and tasteless way of dressing herself concealed her few small feminine attractions which might have been brought out if she had possessed any taste in dress her skirts were always awry and she frequently scratched herself no matter on what part of her person totally indifferent as to who might see her and so persistently that any one who saw her might think that she was suffering from something like the itch the only adornments that she allowed herself were silk ribbons which she had in great profusion and of various colours mixed together in the pretentious caps which she wore at home as soon as she saw her husband she rose and said as she kissed his whiskers did you remember potin my dear he fell into a chair in consternation for that was the fourth time on which he had forgotten a commission that he had promised to do for her it is a fatality he said it is no good for me to think of it all day long for i am sure to forget it in the evening but he seemed really so very sorry she merely said quietly you will think of it to-morrow i dare say anything new at the office yes a great piece of news another tinsmith has been appointed second chief clerk she became very serious and said so he succeeds ramon this is the very post that i wanted you to have and what about ramon he retires on his pension she became furious her cap slid down on her shoulder and she continued there is nothing more to be done in that shop now and what is the name of the new commissioner bonasso she took up the naval yearbook which she always kept close at hand and looked him up bonasso toulon born in eighteen fifty one student commissioner in eighteen seventy one sub-commissioner in eighteen seventy five has he been to sea she continued at that question caravan's looks cleared up and he laughed until his side shook as much as balin as much as baffin his chief and he added an old office joke and laughed more than ever it would not do to send them by water to inspect the pont du jour for they would be sick on the penny steamboats on the seine but she remained as serious as if she had not heard him and then she said in a low voice as she scratched her chin if we only had a deputy to fall back upon when the chamber hears everything that is going on at the admiralty the minister will be turned out she was interrupted by a terrible noise on the stairs marie louise and philippe auguste who had just come in from the gutter were slapping each other all the way upstairs 
Their mother rushed at them furiously, and taking each of them by the arm, she dragged them into the room, shaking them vigorously. But as soon as they saw their father, they rushed up to him, and he kissed them affectionately, and taking one of them on each knee, began to talk to them. Philippe Auguste was an ugly, ill-kempt little brat, dirty from head to foot, with the face of an idiot, and Marie-Louise was already like her mother, spoke like her, repeated her words, and even imitated her movements. She also asked him whether there was anything fresh at the office, and he replied merrily, your friend Ramon, who comes and dines here every Sunday, is going to leave us, little one. There is a new second head clerk. She looked at her father, and with a precocious child's pity, she said, Another man has been put over your head again. He stopped laughing and did not reply, and in order to create a diversion, he said, addressing his wife, who was cleaning the windows, How is Mama upstairs? Madame Caravan left off rubbing, turned round, pulled her cap up as it had fallen quite on her back, and said with trembling lips, "'Ah, let us talk about your mother, for she has made a pretty scene. "'Just imagine, a short time ago, Madame Le Baudin, the hairdresser's wife, "'came upstairs to borrow a packet of starch of me, "'and, as I was not at home, your mother chased her out as though she were a beggar. "'But I gave it to the old woman. "'She pretended not to hear as she always does when one tells her unpleasant truths, "'but she is no more deaf than I am, as you know. "'It is all a sham, and the proof of it is that she went up to her own room immediately without saying a word.' Caravan, embarrassed, did not utter a word, and at that moment the little servant came in to announce dinner. In order to let his mother know, he took a broom handle, which always stood in the corner, and rapped loudly on the ceiling three times, and then they went into the dining room. Madame Caravan, Jr., helped the soup, and waited for the old woman, but she did not come, and as the soup was getting cold, they began to eat slowly, and when their plates were empty, they waited again, and Madame Caravan, who was furious, attacked her husband. She does it on purpose, you know that as well as I do, but you always uphold her. Not knowing which side to take, he sent Marie-Louise to fetch her grandmother, and he sat motionless with his eyes cast down, while his wife tapped her glass angrily with her knife. In about a minute, the door flew open suddenly, and the child came in again, out of breath and very pale, and said hurriedly, "'Grandmama has fallen on the floor!' Caravan jumped up, threw his table napkin down, and rushed upstairs, while his wife, who thought it was some trick of her mother-in-law's, followed more slowly, shrugging her shoulders as if to express her doubt." When they got upstairs, however, they found the old woman lying at full length in the middle of the room, and when they turned her over, they saw that she was insensible and motionless, while her skin looked more wrinkled and yellow than usual, her eyes were closed, her teeth clenched, and her thin body was stiff. Caravan knelt beside her and began to moan. "'My poor mother! My poor mother!' he said. But the other Madame Caravan said, "'Bah! She's only fainted again, that's all, and she's done it to prevent us from dining comfortably. You may be sure of that.' They put her on the bed, undressed her completely, and Caravan, his wife, and the servant began to rub her, but in spite of their efforts she did not recover consciousness, so they sent Rosalie, the servant, to fetch Dr. Chenet. He lived a long way off, on the quay, going towards Cernes, so it was a comfortable time before he arrived. He came at last, however, and after having looked at the old woman, felt her pulse, and listened for a heartbeat, he said, "'It is all over.' Caravan threw himself on the body, sobbing violently. He kissed his mother's rigid face, and wept so that great tears fell on the dead woman's face like drops of water. And naturally, Madame Caravan Jr. showed a decorous amount of grief, and uttered feeble moans as she stood behind her husband while she rubbed her eyes vigorously. But suddenly Caravan raised himself up with his thin hair in disorder, and looking very ugly in his grief, said, "'But are you sure, doctor? Are you quite sure?' The doctor stooped over the body, and handling it with professional dexterity as a shopkeeper might do, when showing off his goods, he said, "'See, my dear friend, look at her eye.' He raised the eyelid, and the old woman's eye appeared altogether unaltered, unless, perhaps, the pupil was rather larger, and Caravan felt a severe shock at the sight. 
Then Monsieur Genet took her thin arm, forced the fingers open, and said angrily as if he had been contradicted, Just look at her hand. I never make a mistake. You may be quite sure of that. Caravan fell on the bed and almost bellowed, while his wife, still whimpering, did what was necessary. She brought the night table, on which she spread a towel and placed four wax candles on it, which she lighted. Then she took a sprig of box, which was hanging over the chimney glass, and put it between the four candles in a plate, which she filled with clean water, as she had no holy water. But after a moment's rapid reflection, she threw a pinch of salt into the water, no doubt thinking she was performing some sort of act of consecration by doing that, and when she had finished, she remained standing motionless, and the doctor, who had been helping her, whispered to her, "'We must take Caravan away.' She nodded assent, and going up to her husband, who was still on his knees sobbing, she raised him up by one arm, while Chenet took him by the other. They put him into a chair, and his wife kissed his forehead and then began to lecture him. Chenet enforced her words and preached firmness, courage, and resignation, the very things which are always wanting in such overwhelming misfortunes, and then both of them took him by the arms and led him out. He was crying like a great child, with compulsive sobs, his arms hanging down and his legs weak, and he went downstairs without knowing what he was doing, and moving his feet mechanically. They put him into the chair which he always occupied at dinner, in front of his empty soup plate, and there he sat, without moving, his eyes fixed on his glass, and so stupefied with grief that he could not think. In a corner, Madame Caravan was talking with the doctor and asking what the necessary formalities were, as she wanted to obtain practical information. At last, Monsieur Chenet, who appeared to be waiting for something, took up his hat and prepared to go, saying that he had not dined yet, whereupon she exclaimed, "'What? You've not dined? Why, stay here, doctor. Don't go. You shall have whatever we have, for of course you understand that we do not fare sumptuously.' He made excuses and refused, but she persisted and said, "'You really must stay. At times like this, people like to have friends near them. And besides that, perhaps you will be able to persuade my husband to take some nourishment. He must keep up his strength.' The doctor bowed, and putting down his hat, he said, "'In that case, I will accept your invitation, madame.' She gave Rosalie, who seemed to have lost her head, some orders, and then sat down to pretend to eat, as she said, to keep the doctor company. The soup was brought in again, and Monsieur Chenet took two helpings. Then there came a dish of tripe which exhaled the smell of onions, and which Madame Caravan made up her mind to taste. "'It is excellent,' the doctor said, at which she smiled, and turning to her husband, she said, do take a little, my poor Alfred, only just to put something in your stomach. Remember that you have got to pass the night watching by her. He held out his plate docilely, just as he would have gone to bed if he had been told to, obeying her in everything, without resistance and without reflection, and he ate. The doctor helped himself three times, while Madame Caravan, from time to time, fished out a large piece at the end of her fork and swallowed it with a sort of studied indifference. When a salad bowl full of macaroni was brought in, the doctor said, By Jove, that is what I am very fond of. And this time, Madame Caravan helped everybody. She even filled the saucers that were being scraped by the children, who, being left to themselves, had been drinking wine without any water and were now kicking each other under the table. Chenet remembered that Rossini, the composer, had been very fond of that Italian dish, and suddenly he exclaimed, Why, that rhymes, and one could begin some lines like this. The maestro Rossini was fond of macaroni. Nobody listened to him, however. Madame Caravan, who had suddenly grown thoughtful, was thinking of all the probable consequences of the event, while her husband made bread pellets, which he put on the tablecloth, and looked at with a fixed, idiotic stare. As he was devoured by thirst, he was continually raising his glass full of wine to his lips, and the consequence was that his mind, which had been upset by the shock and grief, seemed to become vague, and his ideas danced about as digestion commenced. The doctor, who, meanwhile, had been drinking away steadily, was getting visibly drunk, and Madame Caravan herself felt the reaction which follows all nervous shocks, and was agitated and excited, 
and, although she had drunk nothing but water, her head felt rather confused. Presently, Chenet began to relate stories of death that appeared comical to him. For in that suburb of Paris that is full of people from the provinces, one finds that indifference towards death which all peasants show, were it even their own father or mother, that want of respect, that unconscious brutality which is so common in the country, and so rare in Paris, and he said, Why, I was sent for last week to the Rue de Puteau, and when I went, I found the patient dead and the whole family calmly sitting by the bed, finishing a bottle of aniseed cordial, which had been bought the night before to satisfy the dying man's fancy. But Madame Caravan was not listening, she was continually thinking of the inheritance, and Caravan was incapable of understanding anything further. Coffee was presently served, and it had been made very strong to give them courage. As every cup was well flavored with cognac, it made all their faces red, and confused their ideas still more. To make matters still worse, Chenet suddenly seized the brandy bottle and poured out a drop for each of them just to wash their mouths out with, as he termed it, and then, without speaking any more, overcome in spite of themselves by that feeling of animal comfort which alcohol affords after dinner, they slowly sipped the sweet cognac, which formed a yellowish syrup at the bottom of their cups. The children had fallen asleep, and Rosalie carried them off to bed. Caravan, mechanically obeying that wish to forget oneself which possesses all unhappy persons, helped himself to brandy again several times, and his dull eyes grew bright. At last the doctor rose to go, and seizing his friend's arm, he said, "'Come with me. A little fresh air will do you good. When one is in trouble, one must not remain in one spot.' The other obeyed mechanically, put on his hat, took his stick, and went out, and both of them walked arm in arm toward the Seine as in starlight night." The air was warm and sweet, and for all the gardens in the neighborhood were full of flowers at this season of the year, and their fragrance, which is scarcely perceptible during the day, seemed to awaken the approach of night, and mingled with the light breezes which blew upon them in the darkness. End of section 23. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.